Okay, Psalm 86. One of the things I wanted to do right here at the beginning is to emphasize that this is a psalm that emphasizes God. I put the different Hebrew names on the board too. I don't know if that helps anybody, but it doesn't hurt any of you because over here I have the translation of the term. For example, the word for God or gods, Elohim, is going to be used five times in the psalm. There's another word for God, El, which is going to be used once. Notice the difference between these two. In one place I have the word Lord in all capitals, Yahweh. And that word is used four times. But another word for Lord, which has a capital L, but the other letters are small, uh, that is used uh, some seven times in Psalm 86. It's used seven times. And the personal pronoun you is used referring to God six times in the psalm. Now, we've stated before that usually the person that is acting in, um, the person that's acting, there's not a separate personal pronoun in most cases in Hebrew that, that's indicated by the verb itself and what uh, is the prefix to the verb or sometimes the suffix to the verb. But when you have a separate personal pronoun, it is for emphasis. And sometimes it's like saying you, you. And the fact that it's used so frequently of God. What I want us to see, whatever else Psalm 86 is about, it's about God. It's about God. And now, this little word key, it's usually translated in most of the versions that I saw. It is usually translated for in Psalm 86. Usually translated for. But the reason I put this word, one, it's a very common word. It's, it's used 4,000 times in Hebrew Old Testament. It's everywhere. But I think in this chapter, what it does is it gives us reason why God should hear his cry or why he's begging God to hear his cry. Sometimes it involves who God is. Because of who you are, for who you are. And sometimes it's because of his service to God. And so I hope I can make clear the, the significance of those things that are on the board. There'll be some other words that we'll call attention to. But if we are able to explain all this adequately and how this fits into the psalm, uh, it will be a profitable time that we have together. But... The heading says, A Prayer of David. Now, let's stop there just a moment. Uh, notice 82, 84 and 85. 84 and 85 had said, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Then 85, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. You have that in 87. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. A Psalm. Then in Psalm 88, song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So this breaks up those five, four psalms devoted to the sons of Korah. 
This is the only psalm that is tied to David in book 3 of the Psalms. Now, do you remember what section is covered by book 3 of the Psalms? Do you remember that? Andrew, I had you at OTP, though, didn't I? So you, so you, you had to answer this at some time on the test. Um, <laughs> what was book three? You remember? Like, what's its main theme? No, as far as what it's how the, the limits of it from this psalm to that um, psalm. Um, Daddy's, I think. To it's a, uh, that's you only missed half. You only did that. So it's 73 to what, Debbie? Um, oh, I didn't write that part. 73 to 89. Well, you, you, you said 89 again. You said 88, you changed here and you scribbled it out and wrote 89. So, okay, 73 to 89. It's the only one in this section of Psalms that is attributed to David. Now, I want to tell you, and when I ask you what I'm about to ask you, I miss this until some commentary said it and I thought, how did I miss that? How are most of the Psalms of David spoken of at the beginning, the heading? Psalm of David. This is a prayer of David. It is a different word. And what's the difference between that and the others? In principle, I don't know that that much, but it's a difference. Most of those are called a psalm of David. This is called a prayer of David. And this word prayer will also, same word for prayer used in the title, is also used in verse 6. In verse 6. But let's go ahead and read the the 17 verses of it. Verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer. Answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds, and you alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me. A band of violent men has sold my life. For they have not set you before them. 
But you, O Lord, are, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me and grant your strength to your servant and say the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Okay. Let's look at the words of the psalm. The first seven verses, I think a good way to divide it, the first seven verses, uh, he begs God to hear his prayer, to rescue him. Uh, In verses 8 through 13, there he simply breaks forth in praise to God. In verses 14 through 17, he describes more of his problem, more of his problem, and bases his petition upon God's nature. We'll, We'll go back over that again as we come to the various points, but 86... Verses 1 through 7, it is a call for the Lord to answer His prayer. The Lord to answer His prayer. In verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am afflicted and needy. Now, this is one of the uses of the word for. Okay? Why does he beg God to answer his prayer? In verse 1, he begs that on the basis of the fact that I am afflicted and needy. Sometimes these words are used together in the law and they mean poor and needy. But when they're used together in the book of Psalms, they usually don't have anything to do with poverty. They don't have anything to do with poverty. They are a person who recognizes great need. Now I think if you look at these verses that I'm putting on the board, you will find in each of these verses, and they're all from Psalms, you will find these two terms, poor and needy, being used together. Poor and needy are used together. Recently, we've really been blessed in that when we've handed out Bibles a couple times, you have people come as a result of that. I know Saturday, we only got to do that for just a little while. Just uh, a family went over there to Dollar Tree for about an hour and uh, tried to hand out. We only handed out eight. And one of those people came here Sunday. But I want to tell you, those people who respond 
are people who sense a profound need in their life. It may be because of all kinds of problems, but they sense a profound need. And I worry that we can easily forget how desperate our need for God is. We can easily forget that because we are in a land where we do not have largely financial needs, at least not the people that are here. Oh, I'm not saying that you couldn't use a couple of extra dollars, but you're not starving to death. We don't have those financial needs. We hopefully, you know, we have some things in our family intact. But because we don't recognize our profound need, we can forget our desperate dependence upon God. And here David recognizes his desperate dependence upon God. And if you can never forget that, in the midst of prosperity, if you never forget that, in the midst of success, that is a blessing. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man, and you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Now, verse 2 also uses the word poor. He states in verse 1, Hear my cry, incline your ear to my call, because I am poor and needy. But in the second verse, he begs God to preserve him because he says, For I am a godly man. Now, one of the things that is going to be said about God in Psalm 86 is that God is a God of loving kindness. This is an idea that we get quite frequently, isn't it? It's in verse 5. You, Lord, are good, ready to forget, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. God's loving kindness is mentioned in verse 5, in verse 13, and verse 15. Now you may say, why did you shift to God's loving kindness? Because when he describes himself as a godly man, it is the same Hebrew root word. It's the same root word. God is a God of loving kindness. And he has repaid God's loving kindness to him with devotion to God, with being a godly person. He has tried to act toward God in accordance with the way that God had acted toward him and had shown mercy to him. And he says, O Lord, I am a godly man. But that doesn't mean his trust is in himself. Because look at verse 2. Save your servant who trusts in you. He speaks of himself here in verse 2 and later in verse 4 as your servant. Your servant. He doesn't, he's not claiming great things for himself. He's claiming to be a servant and will claim to be in verse 16 the son of your handmaid. Be gracious to me. O 
God. And we're going to point out later, Lord willing, you may have to help remind me, but we're going to try to point out later times that um, this Hebrew root for grace or favor is used in Psalm 86. But he says in verse 3, Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Did you notice the four? For to you I cry. Why does he beg God here to answer his prayer? And he said, Because I cry all day long. He continually cries out to God, calls out to God, begs for God's rescue. Because of his perpetual cries, he begs God to hear his prayer. Vicki. In verse 2, the ESV says, Preserve my life. Mm-hmm. And you, your translation soul. says soul. So, but yes. in verse 4, the ESV says, Gladden the soul. Yes, make glad the, the soul of your soul. The Hebrew word is a word called nefesh. It can be translated soul, self. It can be translated. All of the translations are looking at the same thing and just say what English word best preserves the idea that he's getting across. I think in verse 2, it is probably the idea of life. I think that, that, that life. Because when we think of soul, we think in terms of something apart from the body, don't we? That's, that's how we, t- it doesn't have to be, but that tends to be how we think. And I don't think that's what he's saying. He's just saying, myself, my life. It will be used several times here too, Vicki. I'll try to call attention to some of them. But, but one of those times is in verse 4. Is in verse 4. But, but the word cry in verse 3 it is the same word. It's translated call. This word cry is translated call in verse 5 and verse 7. So the same word is used in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. Verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. In verse 3, I cry all day long. In verse 5, God is abundant loving kindness to all who call, all who cry unto you. In verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I shall call unto you. So he calls day and night, he calls in his trouble, and God's promises are great to those who call upon him. In verse 4, make glad the soul. There's the word Vicky. And, uh, and, and what... <laughs> You see, translations that may think life is the best rendering in verse 2, as you pointed out, may think soul is better here. But he's just saying, my whole being, really. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O God, I lift up my soul. Another use, not to be redundant, of the word for, for to you, he says, I lift up my soul. So all he is, all he has, he is lifting up.
to God. And so he begs God for that reason, because God is his total trust. He begs God to to, um, hear his cry. I lift up my soul uh, to you. Actually, the word soul is used a couple of times in that verse. Do you see that? Uh, But the word that is used there for lift up, uh, that word was used, I think it was used back in verse, I think it was used back in Psalm 85. I'm not sure. It may not be 85. But it was used of God forgiving our sins. He lifts up and carries them away. We lift up ourselves to God. God lifts up. That heavy burden of sin and carries it off so that we don't have to bear it. But here, I lift up my soul to you. In verse 5, you notice the four again because he says in verse 5, For you, Lord, there's our personal pronoun addressing God, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. What reason would you say that he's giving right here why he calls on God? Why does he call on God? Why does he expect God to answer his prayer? His loving kindness? His loving kindness. Just because of who God is, isn't it? It's because of who God is. God's nature. Just knowing the nature of God as we do. He is fully expecting an answer to his prayers. He is fully... Now, some of these things are going to be repeated in verse 15. Verse 15 is going to be fuller. But God is good. God is ready to forgive. Some of your versions have good and forgiving. Good and forgiving. But but this particular word for forgive, it's in this form, it's used only here. But but it's but it's used it's only used as an adjective, I should say. Seems to be used, it's used a lot of other places. But you, Lord, are good. God's good. God's ready to forgive. God is abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon Him. God is more ready to forgive than we are to repent. God is anxious, willing, and able to forgive. He is good. He is ready to forgive. He is overflowing in loving kindness. Overflowing in it. It is abundant in Him. And this word abundant will be used of God's loving kindness and truth in verse verse 15. But in verse verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplication. Uh, In the day of trouble... I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. Why does he go to God in prayer? In verse 7, the reason that he goes to God in prayer, he is confident of going to God in prayer because God will 
answer. Our God is a God who hears prayer. I want to tell you, there are times in my life, and I can remember one time um, about 20 years ago where something happened. I really struggled with this because I prayed fervently. I prayed selflessly. Uh, I would not benefit in any shape, form, and fashion by the answer. But God did not answer the prayer the way I prayed it. And I can remember struggling with that for a couple of weeks. But I can also remember times in my life where I have prayed for things that seemed impossible that God had answered prayer. And there was no other explanation for what had happened that He had answered prayer. And I want to tell you too, there have been a couple of times where God answered prayers that I wasn't even wise enough to pray at the moment. Yes, if you have those experiences, remember those too. Don't just remember the times that you pray, God didn't do exactly what you thought was best in a situation. And I know how that goes. Sometimes it may be truly selflessly. You pray those things. Think about all the times God has answered. In the day of my trouble, I'll call upon you, for you will answer me. So he begged God to answer in verse 1. He is confident in verse 7 that God will answer. Fourteen imperatives in this, in this whole psalm. Fourteen imperatives. But what, what question do you have right there? A comment do you have? David? I know sometimes I've prayed for things and the answer's been no. Yes. And looking back, that was the best answer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I know I can, I can think of many times with that as well. And thank you, God, for unanswered prayers. You don't remember that country song? Country songs sometimes do mimic life. And that was one that does. Okay, uh, boy. I'm, I'm thankful that uh, there were times in my life where I was not living right. And I don't think I'd be where I am now if it were not for people praying for me. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure that it's true with every one of us in some cases that we will never even recognize and never even know. But I, I tell you what, I do remember growing up that there was a, there was a Bible class teacher uh, growing up. And, and I don't know if she was particularly the greatest teacher. I just can't remember now because I was only like seven or eight. Um, but I do remember I love that teacher she was an older lady she was almost 70 and uh, I can remember when they were going to move us up I took my stand in church and I said I'm not moving up I'm staying in this class I think they let me get away with that till the end of that class or something and then they kind of took me by force and marched me to that next class. 
And, uh, but she would tell me over the years, particularly after I started preaching, she'd say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And uh, I know she did. And uh, she was, um, and we've all had people like that in our lives. And uh, so we have much, much to be thankful for. Yes. Anything else? Isaiah? I really like that there's no specifics to David's circumstance in this song. All David knows is that he's in need of God's help. And that God will answer his prayer. He's not even quite sure what he needs to pray for. He just knows that God is going to answer him if he comes to him. Very good. Very good. Especially in this section. There will be a little more of a hint of some things in verse 14 and 17, but even those are general. Those are general as a whole. Let me ask you too, is everybody doing okay? Do we need this or how are we doing? Okay, everybody's doing okay. Okay, because I because I'm gonna tell you, y'all may not know it, but I can talk louder than this. So <clears throat> but verses eight through thirteen, eight through thirteen refer to the nature of God. He talks about the God to whom he prays. And he says in verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Actually, the same word is used, There is no one like you, there are no works like your works. The same word is used in both parts of that verse. But there's no one like God. There's no one that we can compare God to. I remember reading a statement just a couple of weeks ago in preparation for something in Samuel. It says, it was in 1 Samuel 2 verse 2 in Hannah's prayer. It says, God's holiness is beyond anything we've ever known or experienced. But isn't that true for just about every attribute of God? That those attributes are beyond anything we've ever known, anything we've ever experienced. There is no one like you among the gods. There's no one to compare God to. There's no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. There there are no works like God's work. And um, the the word that is used here for works uh, is a word okay okay scratch that it doesn't come this word is used later in verse um, it's in another verse let me call attention to it but um, nor are there any works like yours. In verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Ultimately, all history is moving in the direction of God. All history is moving in the direction of God. And all peoples, all nations, all of them must serve God. Sometimes you hear people talk about being on the right side of history. If you're not on the right side of God, you're not on the side of God, you're on the wrong side of history. Because history is all moving toward Him. And in verse, in verse 10, you are great 
and do wondrous deeds. You do wondrous deeds, you alone are God. Now, this verse 10 is the place that uses the word, I was thinking it was the word works in verse in verse 8, but it's actually the words wondrous deeds in verse 10 that is often used of things associated with the exodus where God sends the plagues against the Egyptians, where God dries up the sea and Israel crosses on dry land. Uh, that is the word that's used here in verse 10. You're great. You're great. You do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. There is no one like you. Now this uses... You alone, for you alone are God. Because, but he's, he's pouring out his cry, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. He again is basing his plea, just like verse 5. He is basing his plea on the nature of God, on who God is. That's why he is confident God will answer his cry. And he begs in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Teach me your way, and I will walk in your truth. We understand how God is incomparable. We know we're not going to figure him out on our own. Teach me your way. Teach me your way. Let me know your way. Let me know your path. There is such humility here. He said, he, he said before, I'm a godly man. But, but there's nothing in this prayer that indicates pride. Teach me your way, O Lord, for I will walk in your truth and unite my heart to fear your name. God, direct my heart to you when um, when they had a when Solomon um, was becoming king when David was near death and David prays a prayer for Solomon and for all the people he said in verse 19 of 1 Chronicles 29 1 Chronicles 29 verse 19 give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments. So give to Solomon a perfect heart. If our hearts are driven to fear God, this is God's work. It is our responsibility too, but it is God's work. And understanding it's God's work leads us not to thank ourselves when things go well, but it is God who has shaped us and molded us, who has taught us His ways that we can walk in His truth. Unite my heart to fear you. Now, just like he mentions the heart in verse 11, he mentions the heart in verse 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. He's going to praise God. He's going to exalt God. For he says in verse 13, For your loving kindness toward me is great. And you have delivered my soul from the doubts of Sheol. Here he again uses the word for. And he bases his plea 
on the nature of God, for you are great. He said, just like he did in verse 5, you are great, the text says. Your, your loving kindness toward me is great, and you've delivered my soul from Sheol. You have rescued me from the pit. You've rescued me from certain death. So, verses 1 through 7, he calls upon God, expects God to answer. Verses 8 through 13, he discusses the nature of God. Now, these, these sections are not mutually exclusive. There'll be mentions of the nature of God all through the psalm. But, but you answer verses 8 through 13 seem a separate section there. While verses 14 through 17 are going to go back strongly to petition and um, his petition to God and his uh, request of God. But in praise of God. What else do you see? What, what else? What other ideas do you have here? Anything? It's interesting to note in verse 3, uh, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Um, in verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. Just that, um, that idea of not, not turning to God some of the time when we need Him, and not praising Him a little or a part of our heart, but yeah. even doing it with our all. Very good. That's good. All day long with all my heart. You know, so... And forever. Forever, forever, yes. <laughs> all day long with all my heart and forever um, there at the end of verse 12. So all of these stress... That, that's a very good point, Micah. You said it well. Uh, it is not some of the time. It is all of the time. All the time. I can't help but wonder if this is pre-king or after he's been a king. It seemed like he, had, he was under run from Saul for a long time and had a lot of troubles, but he was still young enough and focused enough on God. He didn't have he didn't have a lot of distractions in his life. I'm thinking at this point. That, that's a good question, um, Gary, and we don't know the answer. Uh, he was on the run from Saul early in his life, that's true. But you know those times weren't over forever when he became king. You know, Absalom was trying to take the throne as well. And there was a rebellion of Sheba, um, which didn't amount to much, it didn't seem, in 2 Samuel 20. But you, you make a good point. I mean, it's certainly David's... David's suffering, in a sense, brings him nearer to God, too. It shows him his dependence upon God when people are chasing him, as we will see in, in this next verse. I guess I always just, when I think about David, I think of his life in second. It's like when he, when he was a young shepherd boy, he spent a lot of time out in the field with the sheep and with God. Yeah. I think, think that's where he got most of his faith was... Well, through his family, but then spending that time out there alone with God and talking to Him and trusting Him and learning from Him, and yeah. just the far the older he gets, the more preoccupied he seems to get with life and women and enemies and 
Well, that can happen just from our responsibilities. And that's why I try to, I, I would tell young people at school, I said, I don't know how busy you are right now. I said, I'm sure that you think you're busier than you can handle. But I said, it is going to multiply as you get older. And you may not have any more time in life to seek God and to read His Word than right now. And um, so that would be, I say that to young people, I say that to all of us, but let's make sure that we're getting attuned to what he said. Um, To go out into the world without the instruction of his word is truly to go out unclothed in a society that is seeking to lead us into sin. Okay, in verse 13, you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Same word, uh, Vicky, that we had talked about earlier. That word is going to be used in verse 14 too. For, O God, arrogant men have risen against me A band of violent men have sought my life. Same word. They've sought my life and they've not set God before them. One of the things that people have noticed about Psalm 86 is there's a lot of things in Psalm 86 that are in other places in the Psalms. For example, listen to Psalm 54 verse 3. Psalm 54 verse 3. Strangers have risen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. So Psalm 54 verse 3, very similar to uh, 86 verse 14. Arrogant men have risen against me. A band of violent men have sought my life. This is... This is this And a little bit of verse 17, which just says, those who hate me, that's about all we know about David's problems. But in verse 15, another one of these personal pronoun references to God. He says, but you, you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. I love that statement. Now, that is one of the most important statements of the Bible. You might say, why do you single it out? I single it out because of how often it is repeated in Scripture. This statement, and there's a similar statement in verse 5. There's not a 4 attached to this, as you see. But this statement in Psalm 86, 15 is basically from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. After Israel had sinned with the golden calf, this is what was said about God. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving transgressions and sins. Numbers 14 and verse 18. Numbers 14 verse 18 says the same thing when God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and make of you a great nation uh, after the spies come back with a bad report. This is repeated in uh, Nehemiah 9 verse 17, Nehemiah 9 verse 31, 
It is repeated in Joel 2, verse 13. It is repeated several places in Psalms, but it is repeated in Jonah 4, verse 2. In Jonah, it is a complaint against God. You remember that? It's a complaint. It is not a cause of thanksgiving. Now, I could give you more verses, and I've got more of my notes where this kind of phrase is used. But that's why I say it's one of the most important statements in the Bible. This is, in a way, the kind of definitive definition of who God is in the Old Testament. When God says to Moses, when Moses says to God, show me your glory, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face and live. But this is... This is his answer. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins. This is who God is. You, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. God is not just a God of loving kindness. He is overflowing in it. As verse 5 said, as verse 15 said, He is abundant in loving kindness and truth. This word truth was used in verse 11 as David said, I will walk in your truth. He wants to walk in God's truth. But in verse 15, this is a characteristic of God. This is a characteristic of God. In verse 16, turn to me, be gracious to me, and grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. He refers to himself as God's servant, just like he did in verse 2, just like he did in verse 4, but he even calls himself a son of of God's handmaid. That expression, the son of your handmaid, is going to be used again in Psalm 116. In Psalm 116 and verse 16. O Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. It is accepting a lowly position a position of unimportant. I am like a slave born in your house. A slave, the son of a slave. He humbles himself before God, but he asks God to be gracious to him, to show him strength. Show me, verse 17, a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. May you, Lord, show your presence with me in such a visible way. May you show it that they may see that you're with me. And may they be ashamed. Now, um, any other thoughts right there? I wanted to point out that... The, do you all have that part down right now? Anybody wants to? If, you, if, you, if anybody wants to take a quick picture, you can. Um, can you take this? 
Okay, there's not. I'm not trying to force you to. I'm going to, I'm going to just use this part of the word. But the particular word for grace or favor in the Old Testament, it appears here a whole lot of times that you may not, well, a few times that you may not expect. Like he begs God to be gracious to me in verse 3 and verse 16. He begs God be gracious to me. Also, um, in verse 6, the word supplication, the word supplication is from this same word. It's from this same word that has as its root the idea of grace. And then in verse 15, you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious the ESV says. But all of these terms refer to God's great mercy. Because there are other terms that refer to that mercy or kindness. But this, this word too that we're dealing with is connected with Hannah's name. Uh, if we talk, if those of you in Wednesday night class or Sunday morning class on 1 Samuel, that it's connected with Hannah's name as well. Any other thoughts there or questions? Uh, Evelyn. Um, in verse 15, um, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious Lord to anger and abounding and steadfast love and truthfulness. Um, I think it's as in the, um, in the Bible ABC's verses. That's, that's some of your memory verses. That's a good verse to memorize. I will tell you that. And um, so I'm glad. That's a good verse to commit to your heart because that is a great verse of Scripture. Anything else? Okay. You know what's coming next. Uh, hopefully it's an exciting time. But we're all uh, wanting to look at um, how Jesus fulfills Psalm 86. Okay, any, anybody here still want to take this? Uh, this okay. Y'all are kind of hurt my feelings because you don't. Nobody's begging me. Don't erase it. 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But Jesus, Jesus and Psalm 86. Jesus and Psalm 86. Now, go ahead and start because you've got a lot to work with here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, refers to herself as the maidservant of the Lord in Luke 1. Okay. Is it, uh, what verse was that? Uh, Luke 1. Oh, excuse me. Um, that's in 16. verse 16. Luke 1, 16? No, it's 
Okay. So, uh, 86, verse 16, son of a handmaid. I, oh, how does she say it? Because she's still talking to Gabriel in 138. How does she yes. say it, Micah? Yeah, at least in that verse. But, but how is it? What's the exact word? And Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. Okay. That's very good. That's very good. That is what I have. Same. Okay. What else? David? Well, Jesus refers to himself many times as a servant. Yes. Uh, yeah. The for word? Example, the, when he washed the disciples' feet. Okay. You call me master, and rightly so, but I have served you. Yes. And uh, particularly, I'll tell you uh, this, this word servant. The word that's used in the Greek translation, the verb form is used in Philippians 2, 7. You, you mentioned other passages that have that idea, David, but this uses the same word, and it said, uh, though he were the form of God, he became a servant. He became a servant. It uses the verb form of this noun to say he became a servant. And uh, so, yes, uh, Jesus became a servant and uh, serves by washing the disciples' feet, which itself is a foreshadowing of Jesus' cross. Gary? In verse 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. I can't help but Jesus being on the cross saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The, the statements about the nature of God that Gary mentions, and he mentioned verse 5, uh, we, we also see a description of God in verse 13, and in verse 15, even 4. And these statements, we know these statements are true in the Old Testament story. We know they're true when Israel sins at the golden calf. And God doesn't destroy them, but God keeps reaching out to the people. We know it's true when the people chose, uh, when men are chose to go search out the land of promise. And they come back with a bad report and say we can't take the land. But the ultimate demonstration, as Gary is saying, the ultimate demonstration of the fact that God is a God who is good uh, and willing to forgive is the cross of Christ. That is the ultimate demonstration. And, and Gary mentioned specifically the prayer in Luke 23, 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But but, but really the whole scene as, as he's on the cross because God is, God is good, God is forgiving, God is abounding in loving kindness. Because God, uh, His steadfast love toward us is great. And uh, verse 15, so yes, a very good, very good point. Um, also think about the emphasis on these words for grace. Okay? Um, all the 
these emphasis, uh, all this emphasis on these words for grace, and, and listen to these verses from John. Um, For from his fullness we have all received. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized in through Christ Jesus. Grace. Grace is mentioned in all these verses that we have. Uh, grace. Truth is mentioned. God's truth particularly in verse 11 and in verse 15. But the ultimate demonstration of grace and truth was in Jesus Christ. When the Bible says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. And, and I, I might be wearing this out. Sometimes I forget what I'm wearing out in meetings and what I wear out here. Uh, but, but, but that statement... Uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. It doesn't mean there was no grace under the law of Moses. It was everywhere in the Old Testament. It's from Genesis 1. If we read recently Psalm 136, and Psalm 136 uses the God's creation as proof of His loving kindness. God's, God's grace is evident from Genesis 1 on, even before sin. His grace is present. But the point is, it's not that there was no grace and no truth in the law of Moses. It is that through Jesus, the revelation of grace and truth is so brilliant that it eclipses all that went before it. That's what it's saying. And particularly, as Gary was saying a moment ago, in the cross, it is so glorious, it eclipses all that was there before it. And I tell you a phrase that struck me too. 86.13, you have delivered my soul from Sheol. The Greek translation uses the word Hades, it's only used like 12 times in the New Testament. Maybe 10. Maybe only 10. But a couple of times it's used. It said of Jesus, You will not leave my soul in Hades. The point is, the same Jesus who dies on the cross, who becomes a servant, who dies upon the cross, the God through whom He, the Jesus through whom grace and truth was revealed, He was not left in the grave, but He overcame the grave. He was triumphant over it. And ultimately, all history is pointing to the fact that all nations will serve Him. All nations will serve Him. Right now, we see people from all nations acknowledging God. When you stop to think of it, and you think of the fact that on every continent people dwell, sometime within the time that we worship here and, and what we experience as a Sunday, people from every continent on earth will take the Lord's Supper doing what we're doing in remembering Jesus. 
People from all nations do it. But there's coming a day, as Philippians 2.9 says, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mary. Um, verse 8, there is no God like you, nor any works like your works. Time and time again we saw Jesus, he speaks like no one speaks, he's wiser than anyone, and who can do these works, no one but God, you know, no one but God can do these. Yes, yes, he does, let's see, okay. Yes, that it's, it's very good. He does the works no one ever does. Okay. What is... Oh, I'm drawing a blank on my passage. That, that's said sometimes in the, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels. He does the works no other man can do. Do you know our verse, Andrew? No. Okay, hang, hold your thought just a second. There is that... Somebody that's got a... In John 3, right? He says no one can do besides what you do. Okay, no one can do these things that you do uh, except God is with him. Yes, he does say that. But somewhere he said, it says something that affects the works that no one else did. Now, either the Bible says that, <laughs> or one year we... It's I, know, the title of the I know it's the title of a lecture book. But, but it's, <laughs> it's almost indistinguishable. No, but was there... Was there scripture and... <laughs> Do you, you remember what verse it was? I was thinking it was a verse that said even stronger than John 3 2, but John 3 2 certainly proves the idea. I was thinking in connection with that, not specifically that, but the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 19 and 20, with uh, his power, his might, uh, Ephesians 2 10, Ephesians 3 7. Um, using those words with it uses the same Greek word used in verse 16 in the Greek translation where it says give your strength to your servant and, and God is used in Ephesians 1.19 of raising Jesus from the dead Okay, so there, there are more verses I think there are more verses I could tie with that I'll try to see if I can find them but, but Andrew you got a fault and you wait on this here um, when you were mentioned um Deliverance from Hades or death kind of made me think of um, of Jonah, and then when Jonah yeah. like was like swallowed by the fish, like Jesus also was like swallowed by death, and Jonah had like a prayer in the belly of the fish, and like we don't know what Jesus would have been saying or thinking while he was whatever was happening between Friday and Sunday. Yeah, this whole yeah. song kind of sounds like like a prayer that he would have prayed from like. From Hades itself. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because then he says, like, show him, he talks about deliverance from death. And then what's going to be happening when, like, that all nations will come and praise God. And then he says, like, show me a sign of your favor or your grace. And the greatest sign of his grace is the resurrection. Yes. The ultimate sign. Yes. So it's like, I don't know, the fulfillment of this song, psalm just with him coming back from death. Kind of, but the, the very good points, very good points, and everybody has had good thoughts. And 
and like, and I didn't mean to you know disparage Debbie's verse earlier. It's a good verse, John three one and two. It's just that I think there's one that says it exactly like that. No the works, no one else did. I'm, I've got to look for that. Yeah, they don't count. You can't remember. <laughs> I know, and I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I was too glad. I was rejoicing about my hearing, but I didn't even work on that. Work on the memory. Okay. Anything else, Michael? The entire psalm sort of rings to mind, especially the first verses, Hebrews 5, uh, 7 through 9, especially verse 7. Uh, speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with payment cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and, has, and was heard because of his godly Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay. And so you were tying it Tying that in with him uh, crying out, this being a prayer of David, okay. yeah. uh, being heard for him. In verse 2, preserve my life, for I am holy, or I'm a godly man. And so he's hurt. Uh, he was hurt yes. because of his piety. Or, you do see. Jesus in the position of the supplicant pouring out his heart before God. But I also, and I didn't point these out, but they're like the line, be gracious to me in the in the um, Septuagint, it was be merciful to me, or uh, show mercy to me, be merciful. But it is that particular cry, be merciful, is the same cry that was made to Jesus by the blind man, Matthew 9, 27. Have mercy on me. Or uh, the, the, the woman who's, the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed in Matthew 15, 22. Have mercy on me. The blind man in 20 and verse 30. Have mercy on me. So, Jesus is both the prayer and the one who answers prayer within this song. And he, he plays both roles in the New Testament. Thank you. You've listened a long time. It's a few minutes afterwards, Christian. Okay. John 15, 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did. That's it. John 15, 24. Okay. So, she must increase and I must decrease. <laughs> John 15, 24, Bob. Just, just a thought. We went through this a time or two before in our men's uh, third Tuesday Bible study, and I've got notes in here about it. But just the, one of the things that uh, jumps out at me is here David is, lived his entire life. Uh, as a Jew, you know, never saw the Lord, never had the revelation of God uh, about Jesus that we we have here before us in our lives today. And what a robust relationship he had. Yeah. And what yeah. that speaks to about the effectiveness of how, how 
how he knows God through absolutely through what was revealed to him, which was was just just the law. That's all he had, but he he can see God perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that's amazing. I, I, I do. Yeah, you, you, you worded it well. I mean, he doesn't have any of the written prophets in his life. He doesn't have um, any of the New Testament, of course. And, and yet still, there's enough there that we could forever be lost in study and meditation on God if that was all we had. And I know the Bible is a brief book considering all it could say. But the Bible has so much in it that we can never exhaust it if we take any one given book. So. Yes, yeah, God's creation. He yeah. was that shepherd out there, like uh, Gary said. You know, he's seeing nature and seeing his sheep and meditating, I think, on that law that you're talking about, too, that time. Absolutely. And he was mulling it over. Yes, exactly. It's just kind of convicting. If, if David can get to this depth of a relationship, what's my excuse? I have no excuse, you know. I, I imagine. Pass him up, you know. I just imagine, and I know we think we're busy. I can't imagine those people without artificial light and stuff, or not much of it, having more time than we've got. I just, I just don't imagine that that's the case. I mean, we are so blessed. And let's make sure to use it to be shaped by God and to conform ourselves to His image. So thank you for being here. Boyd, would you want to lead us in prayer?